The National Archives podcast series, The Civil Service in the First World War, presented by Audrey Collins. This talk was recorded live on the 11th of November 2014 at the National Archives Q. Thank you very much for coming. It's a great honour and a privilege to be asked to do a talk on Remembrance Day, particularly in this centenary year of the outbreak of the First World War. The subject is uh, civil servants in the First World War, government departments on a war footing. And the reason I'm doing this is I'm part of the public history team here. My specific job title is family history specialist. And as you may know, over the, the, the course of the next few years, we have a planned programme here at the archives of various events and commemorations on all sorts of different aspects of the the First World War as the various centenaries occur. The focus at the moment is particularly on diplomacy and the background of the causes of the war, but in two years' time, the focus is going to be on the home front. And this is where we as the public history team come in, that we are looking at all kinds of aspects of the war that are not the, the military side. The, there are plenty of perfectly good military historians. They're doing a great job. They don't need any more help from me. So those of us in the public history team, we're looking at a variety of different aspects of the war. One of my colleagues is looking at the business of marriage and divorce. Another one is thinking about propaganda. Um, there's diversity and dissent, all sorts of uh, different aspects of it. I chose the civil service for a couple of reasons. One, as a family historian, I was very interested in the general register office, and I've been chipping away at researching the history and development of the General Register Office on and off for about the last 15 to 20 years. And although I was mainly interested in the 19th century and the origins of it, um, I did have a look at what happened in the 20th century and obviously during the First World War. And that was quite interesting. I found things which are, well, once they're pointed out to you, they're quite obvious, but you wouldn't necessarily think of them. And... This is something that is common to a lot of government departments. They all had a lot of the same problems, that as soon as men started joining up, they had a depleted staff. But in many cases, and probably in more cases than you might imagine, they also had an increased workload. In the case of the General Register Office, um, the rather um, gloomy one was that in the first place, they had to register an awful lot more deaths. Although the General Register Office doesn't do the registering, it keeps the records and it has to accession them and administer them. They also had a massive increase in the number of applications for certificates, particularly marriage certificates, because the wives of soldiers and other servicemen had to prove that they were married to get their separation allowances or possibly a widow's pension. Similarly, birth certificates of children and so on. So there was a massive extra workload. And this was repeated in a lot of other departments. And the other thing about the civil service is they were not all in Whitehall. You think about civil service, obviously we think about Whitehall and all those government departments in Victoria Street and uh, up and down um, Whitehall. But that's only a small part of the civil service. There are some civil service departments which had and still have offices all over the country. And by the country, I mean the United Kingdom. 
And of course, you have to bear in mind that 100 years ago, the United Kingdom included the whole of Ireland. Now, our two departments here, um, the two war memorials that are downstairs in the foyer, which I hope you will have seen, we have a large memorial, which is the um, HMSO memorial, um, which is the, the parent department of what is now part of the National Archives. There is also a photograph of a much smaller memorial, which is the Public Record Office memorial, that only has seven names on it. And we only have a photograph because the original is where it should be in the original Public Record Office building in Chancery Lane. But these two departments for which we have the memorials and where we have researched as far as we can uh, a lot of the names on there, between them they illustrate two extremes of the civil service in a way, which is quite a nice um, case study in themselves. It's hard to imagine anywhere that is much less frontline than the public record office. Um, but the stationary office was all over the place. It had offices in Edinburgh and in um, Dublin as well as in London. And in, in the course of the war, in 1916, it actually had to set up a whole new office in Manchester to cope with the huge increase in work. And talk about hiding in plain sight. All the work that went on behind the scenes to get the war machine working and all the planning behind it, that was done by the civil service. And what does the civil service use a lot of? Stationery and forms. And that has to come from somewhere. The fairies don't bring it. So when you're looking at First World War records and bearing in mind the huge number that we know have not survived, that is a phenomenal amount of paper. And there really weren't any alternatives. There was no internet. There were no electronic things. They didn't have iPads and tablets. So everything was on paper and very often in duplicate and triplicate. So the stationary office had a phenomenal extra workload. And you see the same thing repeated in quite a number of, of other departments. Now, when I started researching on this, saying, I will look at the civil service, place to start is our research guide. This you will find if you go into our Looking for a Person page in the records part of our website. And it's one of a number of short basic guides that get you started. And the, the very first opening paragraph is what I call a great big health warning, really. It says that um, records of civil or crown servants, many of these records do not survive. Um, and it, it's, it's called managing expectations. You will not find on the whole a lovely through service record for a civil servant that you will normally expect to find for someone in the armed forces. That doesn't mean that there isn't anything. Being the contrary individual that I am, I thought, oh, I'm sure we must have more than that. And I knew from my own researchers into the General Register Office that it's not always easy to find. They're in odd, random, unexpected places. But there is a great deal of information about the individuals who worked in that civil service department. And I thought there's a fair old chance there is going to be quite a bit in other departments. So I set about looking for it. Now, as a family historian, normally I am looking for lists of names. There's nothing quite like a list of names to get family historians excited. We, we, you know, we, we just own up to it. We like that. Index lists of names are even better, but any list will do. And the more information that comes along with those names, the better. 
Oddly enough, in this case, I wasn't particularly looking for lists of names because while I'm very interested in the individuals and you can't look at the history of an organisation without being interested in the individuals, I was mainly interested to start with was just the general approach and how the civil service and the departments as organisations coped with the challenges of the war uh, and how they adapted to it. Uh, what measures they had to take and what their particular problems were. Of course, when I started looking, what I found was lots and lots of lists of names. There is an abundance of material there. The problem is, maybe uh, not unlike the way the civil service um, itself generally operates, even today, I think, is that there's a lot of information there, but every department has its own particular way of doing things. So where there are lists of names, really the only thing they have in common is that they are lists of names. Some of them have lots of other information with them, dates of service, dates of birth, maybe salaries, places of birth, all kinds of other information. But the one thing you can be reasonably sure of is that anything you look at in one department, you are unlikely to find anything exactly the same in any other department. So it does make it very difficult to generalise about them. But it's such a lot of fun looking, and I have found uh, a great deal. Now, the place that you would start looking for individual civil servants would be um, a wonderful set of printed volumes called the Imperial Calendar. We have a set of this. I, I've just um, got some volumes there from the war years, but the, the series starts in, in 1849, and it goes on. In fact, nowadays, it has now become um, the Civil Service Yearbook. And that rather like the things like Crockford's or the army list. It's a list of all the people who are on the, the establishment at any given time. And, of course, I couldn't resist having a look at a page for the General Register Office where you have everyone, at least the established staff. And that is the big divide. There is established staff and there are unestablished staff members. And an unestablished staff member might be somebody who's only temporary, um, Although, it, but a lot of them could be people who worked in post for many, many years, but they were not part of the establishment. Now, although I am a civil servant because I work here at the National Archives, I'm kind of a civil servant by accident because I came in through my interest in history. I'm, I'm not um, what you'd call a lifer, um, like my brother who went into the civil service straight from school. So I'm not completely um, sort of soaked in uh, civil service culture, and it probably shows, because there are probably things that a civil servant would expect me to know that I don't. Uh, sometimes it's quite good being an outsider, though. I keep telling myself. So you can start by looking at the imperial calendar, and that's on the open shelves in our reading room, just near our blue inquiry desk, if anybody really wants to go and look up old civil servants in there. And that's a very useful place to start. Even if you're not interested in individuals, it's quite interesting to look at a page, um, or the set of pages in the case of the larger departments, at the, say at the beginning of the war, and then look at pages throughout the war and later to see how the establishment changes. You don't always get all the names listed, but sometimes you will get the numbers. So something like a certain number of female typists or temporary porters, which can give you an idea of uh, how an establishment changed, how it grew, and in some cases contracted. Now, I mentioned that every department had its own challenges. Some of them are very obviously frontline departments, 
like the, you know, the, the War Office and the Admiralty. They're the particularly obvious ones. But lots of other departments, you can see, have a, would have a very key role in the, the, the conduct of the war. Um, and the dedicated department, the Ministry of Munitions, uh, would be a particular example of that. But I just wanted to go on and show you something else that I, I found, uh, which is one of the documents we have on our document display at the moment. And this is the staff book from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is part of the, what is now the Ministry of Justice, which is our parent department. So I thought this was a suitable one to include. And the Supreme Court is the, the staff of the uh, probate and divorce section. And they have a staff book. It's a very small book, but every man, of course they're all men, um, has a double-page spread. And that shows his dates of service and a summary of his service. And rather conveniently, they have annotated in red all of the war service in the First World War and in the cases of a few of these men in, in the Boer War as well. And this is quite revealing. I haven't seen anything quite like this in any other department. Um, and this, this is the good thing and the bad thing about some of this research. You see something amazing. You think, wow, wouldn't it be terrific if we had that in another department? Well, there probably isn't. But when you piece them all together, uh, you can get an idea of uh, the way things worked. In red, you will get details of service, which in many cases will be called up straight away on 4th of August or the 5th of August 1914. And these would be men who were already reservists or territorials of some kind. Um, on the, the anniversary of the um, start of the war in August, uh, our senior military specialist, William Spencer, did give a talk which I believe wasn't recorded or the recording wasn't of um, great quality. Uh, but I spoke to him this morning and we were quite interested in trying to get that re-recorded because he was talking about how the army and the services were mobilised remarkably quickly. It was astonishing just how quickly and efficiently the army was assembled. All the reservists um, and all the regular troops all got together and deployed and sent off to France in double-quick time. Now, this only happens if somebody plans it. And there was a lot of planning going on. Uh, if you look at the various records, the correspondence and the internal memos from various departments, you will see that they had a pretty good idea what was coming. So the war did not take them by surprise. They all had their war books, which were their plans of action, if and when war broke out, exactly what to do, right down to a very precise level of detail about who was to telephone who and in what order they were to do particular tasks. So there was a tremendous amount of planning, and that was all done by the civil servants, by the faceless bureaucrats. Um, and in cases like this, where someone was a reservist, they would be called up immediately, and off they would go. Or, in many other cases, they would volunteer. A lot of men volunteered. Established civil servants had to have permission to join the forces. And on the whole, government departments were quite keen to be seen to be doing their bit. But at the same time, with the extra workload and a war to run, they, they were in a bit of a cleft stick. And in fact, the, there is a letter in the correspondence of the Public Record Office, a letter from the War Office, saying that it was a great dilemma as to whether it was best to keep experienced men in post um, 
or to let them go to the armed forces because in many cases their experience and expertise might be better uh, employed in the war effort by keeping them at home doing their office job. And it was a constant dilemma. This crops up time and time again in the correspondence and various memoranda and circulars to government departments. But at this point, you have men joining up. Um, This particular book also tells you if and when they come back, you get some noted where this man was killed. Others are injured and they come back to work in the office. Others go through the war and come out, usually in 1919. Uh, The armistice might have been in 1918, but it took quite a long time to get everyone demobilised. So you get them resuming their service. So this is a wonderful little window into just one fairly small department, but this book is an absolute little gem. Some departments, and the Board of Trade was one, had phenomenal amounts of information. The Board of Trade produced lots and lots of very detailed printed lists of their staff, very often with a lot of supplementary detail. The Board of Trade, which is the, um, the ancestor department of what is now the Department of Business Innovation and Skills, um, has a fascinating history and had a very key role to play in the First World War. Um, those of us who research here a lot we almost inevitably associate the Board of Trade with merchant shipping because that's where all the records, all those frustratingly difficult-to-use records of our merchant seamen ancestors, such records as there are, survive because things had to be registered with the Board of Trade. It had responsibilities for a huge number of things, obviously (coughs) shipping, but a lot to do with the food supply generally, and uh, labour exchanges all around the country. There were Board of Trade employees all over the place and they were in a key position recruiting people to go into, among other things, munitions works. So the Board of Trade um, is a very fine example of a department which is um, spread around throughout the whole country and had a very, very key role to play. It's also a department that has um, researched its own history rather well. Um, I, I was This morning, I was actually at that department. I was at their own wreath-laying ceremony, so I missed ours. Um, And they had an absolute massive turnout. You could barely move the people in the building coming to witness the the wreath-laying. But they had a little document display of their own history. And before their own website was joined into the gov.uk website, they had an area on their on their old website, which had uh, a lot of the history to do with the First World War and a lot of very good research. Happily, that has not gone to waste because it has now been preserved on the government web archive. And when I was alerted to this um, by two two people on successive days, and although I knew that some work had been done, I didn't know there was anything online. So I have spoken to our editorial team, and although it hasn't gone live yet, we will be putting a link... Uh, in our guide to researching civil service ancestors to that bit of the Board of Trade history uh, which has got a lot of wonderful information in there including lots of names and they are still actively working on uh, researching their own history and commemorating their own um, dead. There were about just over 300 Board of Trade employees who died in the First World War which is a huge number compared to um, in our own memorials, I mean, the stationary office, it's just about, about 48 or thereabouts. That's, that's quite enough, thank you. Imagine 300. Um, so there is a lot of work being done on that. And I'm quite 
pleased to see that a number of other government departments are also very interested in their own histories. Colleagues and I have been to speak at some of them to the Foreign Commonwealth Office, Cabinet Office, um, and the Treasury, uh, among others, and we've had approaches from some other government departments who are interested in the records that we might have here. So uh, I find that quite gratifying, that I'm not the only person who's interested in the civil service in the First World War. I never thought I was. So the Board of Trade is a particularly nice one. They're just pages and pages of all these lists of names, which are wonderful. Um, but you don't get this for every department. But you do get all sorts of things, sometimes cropping up in unexpected places. Now, th this is uh, something from the, the stationary office. This is a, I hesitate to say typical, but a number of departments had lists of members of staff who were of military age because this was a piece of information that they needed to know who is likely to volunteer to join up. And then from 1916, when conscription uh, was introduced and that, that made a, an even bigger difference, you will get helpful lists like this. Sometimes they will give the person's actual age or date of birth. Sometimes they don't. And in the, the case of the Board of Trade, they, give the, um, they just say that these people are within the range. They give you their years of service, which can be helpful if you're trying to work out roughly how old somebody is and see whether it's your man or not. And it also gives the, the branch that they were in, which, of course, as you can see, uh, includes Dublin and Edinburgh. So these are not all English or Welshmen. These are, there are Scots and Irish in there as well. And I've seen similar things in a number of departments. I, I was looking at, a, I think it was a home office list, where a whole list of names and pencil next to it was indisp, indisp. And I thought, indisposed, these people are a sickly lot. Then I realised, no, what they actually meant was indispensable. Well, that was negotiable. What a government department considered indispensable would not necessarily meet with the agreement of the war office. So there was a bit of a, a tussle going on. And... Um, this is uh, also from the uh, stationary office, which uh, being a wonderful example of a department which is all over the place. This is the uh, uh, group photograph from the staff of the Government Forms Department in Salford. And this is one of the, the establishments that was set up in the First World War. It was set up in 1916, and we have a, a, this comes from a photograph album, which has got four group photographs of the various... Uh, staff establishments and also some lovely pictures of the buildings uh, that they operated in and uh, a little history of how that particular section came about and it is very clear that while they were as they were there they were also instrumental in distributing you know, paper clips and bottles of ink to um, people who needed them in bits of the civil service in the northwest primarily it was set up to cope with this huge amount of extra paper that was needed and they did all sorts of things that they 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 had to they didn't necessarily do the printing but the printing had to be tendered for and procured they had to source the paper and what I like about these people is that not only are they civil servants outside London but they are well a lot of them are women this being one of the the solutions that a lot of government departments had to come to rather reluctantly in some cases this was a way of coping with your staff shortages. But um, we have another picture of, of another department there where this is so far removed from men in pinstripes and bowler hats uh, that you could imagine. Um, there are, this is the 
the, the porters and the packers. So there are men with mufflers and women in overalls and pinnies. Uh, and, but they are all civil servants and they are in the northwest in Manchester and Salford um, and Oldham. And there are lots and lots of them. We have um, the staff establishment books, which are essentially lists of names with dates of appointment and usually dates of birth as well. And we have two great big thick books that cover a wider period than just the First World War. They go on into the 1920s. But they list the stationary office establishment. And there is one book which is for established staff and another book, the same size, which is specifically unestablished staff. And these are people who are either temporary or, in many cases, these are packers and porters. And a really interesting page in that is that they show these people listed by date of appointment. June 1915, they've got the first woman um, packer. And then in July 1915, loads and loads more. And there are several pages listing females who've been recruited uh, many of them for the, um, in 1916 onwards anyway, many of them in these northern offices. But there were women employed, um, lots of other jobs as well. Um, they're, they're obviously, there'd always been women, you know, charwomen and cleaners and tea ladies. But they did actually start employing more women clerks and women in manual jobs like packing. And there are huge, great lists of them. So just looking at those lists, and you don't have to be interested in an individual, though you might be, is quite revealing as to just the, the change in the nature of employment there. They suddenly had to employ large numbers of women. This um, is a particularly sad letter. This is from the Home Office. And as far as we can tell, this is a notification of the first casualty among Home Office staff, a young man who had been a boy clerk. And um, his death is reported in May 1915. And his name was Bernard Johnson. And when we looked at this a bit more closely, I thought, this is interesting. Because although it doesn't give his age there, it says Boy Clark, so you were looking at a fairly young person. And you look him up on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website, and it gives his age. And he wasn't 18. He wouldn't have turned 18 until later in 1915. But he was out there, and he got killed. And at first I thought, how did he manage? He must have lied about his age. That's no big deal. Lots of people did. But how did he get away with it when he had to ask permission? And then I realized he didn't have to ask permission. He was a boy clerk. He was not an established member of staff. So he could just go up and join, go and join up, which he did. Um, time is limited, so we couldn't research everything about everybody and every interesting story that comes up. But although his surname is Johnson... Um, he did have the decency to have a reasonably distinctive first name. And um, as far as I can tell, he was uh, the son of a professional soldier. Uh, so maybe that was why he was particularly keen to follow his father. We're not quite sure what happened to his father, who seems to have been dead before he died. But his father was still around in 1911. So whether his father was killed in, the, in the, the First World War as well. We don't know because, bearing in mind that the man's surname was Johnson, this could be a challenge. But this is just one example um, of the first casualty from that particular department, um, as far as we can tell. I, I stand to be corrected on that. But it, it's, a, it's an example of the sort of thing that I have found in the various researches. Now, 
Come 1916, I wouldn't say everything changed, but the crucial thing was that conscription was introduced for the first time. And this uh, moved the goalposts somewhat because the government departments themselves no longer had the final say on whether established staff could join up or not. This um, is from the Middlesex Military Service Appeal Tribunals. This is one series of records which we have put online. Now, the military service tribunals, first of all, there were local tribunals. From 1916, when men were called up, they could appeal uh, on a number of grounds to their local tribunal, and if they were refused, they might then appeal to the county tribunal. What we have here are the records of the Middlesex Tribunal. Now, after the war, because this was very, very considered very sensitive material, an order went out that all of the county tribunal records should be destroyed, but the Middlesex ones and the Midlothian ones for Scotland were to be kept just as examples. Um, so that is why we have Middlesex and only Middlesex although there is what is supposed to happen and then there is what actually happens. And we do know that a number of county record officers have said, well, we've got a collection. Obviously, somebody didn't get the memo or choose to ignore it. So this is the, a complete collection for the Middlesex ones, but it is only the ones that got to county level. There are quite a lot of local ones. We've put these online, and they're searchable by name, obviously, but they're also searchable by a number of other factors, including a place of residence and occupation. So there are quite a number in there of civil servants. And one of the grounds on which you could appeal was that your work was of national importance. And, um, but the, the high proportion of the civil service ones that I've found are actually people who were conscientious objectors. And... This I think, is one of those. But they, this is an unusually detailed one for Horace Cecil Gates. But if you go in and look, look online on our uh, military tribunals uh, through Discovery, um, you can search for civil servants and find quite a lot. Well, you can search for anything you like. They're quite revealing documents. And uh, again, most of the appeals were not upheld because uh, the country was uh, under increasing pressure to send more and more men to the front. And the standards dropped. You will see people where, where they, they tried to join up in 1914 and they were rejected as being medically unfit. But a couple of years on, when we were running out of recruits, the army got a bit less fussy about who it would take. Um, so combined with the service records, these military appeal tribunals, they just shed an, uh, an interesting light on a particular aspect of the war. Not everybody was applying for a permanent exemption. Some people were just applying for a temporary stay so that they could get their affairs in order. But they do make very interesting reading, and it's, a, it's an interesting aspect of civil service life. We have a file um, on a particular individual who worked for the General Register Office, um, and like a lot of things, it, frustratingly, you don't know what the outcome was. Uh, but there was a particular man who was dismissed uh, because he was a conscientious objector. Uh, but he then does some service um, 
contributing to the war effort. So they, they're, they're kind of forgiving of it. He doesn't seem to have been, to have rejoined the staff of the General Register Office, though, after the war, as far as I can tell from looking at the imperial calendar. But that's the nature of a lot of documents. You get the information that somebody recorded or a bit of correspondence that was recorded at the time for a particular reason. Um, and the, the per- person who wrote it and created the file was not necessarily interested in the through-life history of the person in the case. It's up to us as researchers to see if we can uh, flesh that out a bit. But th- those are interesting records that are worth looking at. And because there were so many civil servants in the London area, you do find quite a number of them there. Now, once the cons- conscription was introduced uh, and there was this heavy element of compulsion... The, um, some things really don't change. The press, uh, some elements of the press were uh, rather hostile to the civil service and uh, accused the single men in the civil service of sheltering under the government umbrella while married men uh, were, were being sent off uh, from other uh, areas of work. And well, the fact that this news clipping was actually kept Um, by, um, in this case, the Home Office, does show that this was something that the the government departments were very aware of and they were at great pains to emphasise how much they had contributed and how many men they had actually sent. And you will see this again in department after department, that there is a lot of discussion about um, how many men they, they can release um, and you know, how they can do their utmost, and to also present the, the, the information to the public that we have sent this number of men, and this is what we're doing to release as many as possible. And there are lots of internal memos saying that um, they're encouraging as many people to join up. as uh, you know, Anyone who wants to join up, uh, we won't stand in your way. But at the same time, they need to keep their operations running. They need to cope with their extra workload whether it's you know, having to um, issue all these extra marriage certificates or produce all this extra stationery um, and all sorts of other things. Um, the Home Office itself had an interesting, not a vast workload, but it was an addition to it. First World War, of course, was the time when nationality and national boundaries started to become really important in a way that it hadn't before. There was relatively free movement before then. There were such things as passports, but you didn't absolutely need them. If you had the means and the opportunity to move, for the most part, people could come and go between different countries. Come the First World War, uh, countries started being very, very suspicious about potential um, enemy aliens um, in their borders. The Customs and Excise, which is another department, which by its very nature is spread out across the whole country and all around the coast and the borders, at least the customs part of it, um, they had a lot of extra work because not only did they have to police things so that contraband wasn't coming in untaxed, but they were also on the lookout for um, enemy aliens trying to smuggle themselves in. Uh, So they were were a front-line force in a sense, although they were civil servants and they were at home, but they could be in harm's way. That was an extra workload that, that they had. But another uh, effect of this uh, concern about nationality was that you're probably aware that people who were enemy aliens with Germans, they weren't allowed to change their names. Some had had the foresight um, 
to change their names before the war so that they had a nice English sounding name because there were plenty of people with German names um, whose families had been in Britain for, for decades um, and having a German name wasn't really an issue. Germany was a very close trading partner. There were lots of um, toing and froing, lots of uh, commercial ties. So there were lots of people of German origin and some of them, you know, like the, the Saxa Coburgs who changed their name to Windsor rather prudently, um, a number of them did change their names, but come the First World War, people, government was being much, much pickier about this. One of the effects was that women took their husband's nationality on marriage. Now, a British woman who was married to a German, um, come 1914, would have had to make a decision of some sort and um, might well have gone with her husband to Germany or gone to somewhere nice and neutral. But there were, there were women who had been married to enemy aliens, um, i.e. Germans, and who were now either widowed or divorced, and who discovered to their horror and surprise that even though they had never in their entire lives left Liverpool and did not speak a word of German, they were German nationals. And they had to get themselves re-naturalised. Um, um, we've got our, our naturalisation records are extremely well indexed and some of them are actually online as well, the earlier ones and you can uh, I found them quite easily to search on, on the catalogue if you use as a search term the word readmission very high proportion of people who were applying to be readmitted to British nationality were women in exactly this case they were the, the widows or the divorced wives of uh, men who just happened to be German. Um, a particular case that drew my attention to this was actually the, I think the great, great, great aunt of a friend of mine who happened to have been married to a German sailor. They were only married for two or three years and he died and they had two daughters and she found to her um, uh, horror that uh, in 1914 she was an enemy alien so she had to get herself renaturalized. There was not a great problem with this because the Home Office recognized a number of people who were in this fix. Uh, so there was no problem about uh, get, getting a nationality back. But it was a process that had to be gone through and paperwork had to be um, created on the basis of that. So that was just, just one example. Also, a probate department had to make arrangements to deal with people who had um, died and uh, either intestate, so there was money to be distributed, or had left a will, and the beneficiaries or the heirs were actually Germans or Austrians, so they were not going to pay out money to those people for the duration of the war. All sorts of things. Germany, having been a big trading partner, meant that goods that were habitually imported from Germany could no longer be imported. We had to find substitutes. Um, I discovered by looking in local newspapers that where the place where I live, it's not where I come from, but where I live, uh, Chesham in Buckinghamshire, um, the, one of the local industries is making lots of small wooden items and um, a few weeks into the war, having initially had a sort of depression and nothing was happening, they suddenly were doing a roaring trade because of lots of wooden items that had previously been imported from Germany couldn't be imported, so anybody who could make things out of wood in this country um, had a ready market. It was wonderful. Another uh, thing that I found in, in the records of the Department for Ed of Education... Uh, surprising just how much we've got in the Department of Education records uh, about 
what was going on in the First World War. Now, a lot of it was to do with individual schools, which is not really the subject of this talk, but things that were going on in the department and some of the circulars that were sent out were fascinating. One of them was encouraging um, schools, sci schools with science labs who had previously been uh, procuring all, the, all that heat-proof glass that you use, all the test tubes and, uh, and the beakers. Again, this was something else which had previously been imported from Germany, which you now couldn't do. So in order to save these precious supplies for um, the, the, you know, the war effort so that in the, the sort of chemical industry could use them to develop armaments and all sorts of things. They were encouraging schools to um, improvise and instead of buying these um, special scientific items, um, to, to, to go to the, to, to buy cheap China teacups um, and to use them to keep their chemicals in. Um, which is, I, whether or not that had any success at all, I have no idea. Uh, but it was fascinating. Then the, the, there's a whole subject there to be explored, the role of schools and how they responded to the war effort. Another thing that was arranged by the, the Department for Education was the or Ministry of Education, as that was. Um, once conscription came in, they, had a, they administered a scheme with the approval of the War Office where certain boys in technical schools... Uh, who were doing science subjects could be exempted from military service. Obviously, the oldest boys in sixth forms, they could be old enough to be called up. Uh, but if they were doing science and were expected to go on to universities and technical colleges and do uh, chemical and engineering subjects where they, they could make a better contribution to the war effort than by going and just being um, joining up in the, the regular army, they, they, they could be exempted um, so there was a special exemption scheme. We do have a few files on that. Whether they are just a sample or whether they are the entire number of boys who apply, or, or boys whose parents, who interestingly were often teachers, um, applied for exemptions for their sons. I don't know. Maybe one day I'll find out. But th this is something else which is administered by um, education. So I just keep finding all sorts of things that Oh, I hadn't thought of that. This is one of my very favourites. The Victorian Albert Museum, uh, like uh, a couple of other organisations, like the Tate Gallery, they have their own archives. They may be in our catalogue, but the documents are um, in that, those locations themselves. However, we have some records to do with the Victorian Albert Museum, which are actually in our education collection. And this is one of my very favourites, is a list which was produced um, by the V&A, and it lists all their members of staff, and this is established and unestablished, and what their jobs were in peacetime, and then uh, which bit of the military they joined, and then what happened to them, and whether they came back. They produced this uh, particular one, is dated in September 1917, and it's a rather beautifully produced thing, obviously meant for public role of honour um, purposes. But in the same file, there is typescript material, which gives even more information about all these people with, more, with actual dates of service and then um, their eventual fate and whether they returned. Uh, my very favourite is actually on the page near the bottom, one of the cleaners, whose name was Mr Bucket. <laughs> I am happy to say that Mr. Bucket survived the war. 
Uh, and this is one of those documents that you think, oh, I so wish that other departments had done this. Well, some others did have lists, something like this. The uh, staff book from the Supreme Court fulfills a lot of the same functions. And I think the moral of that is just keep rummaging around. You never know what you're going to find. I, I'm still in the early rummage stage. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful to document services who just keep producing all these masses of documents that I keep ordering. I do try to turn them over as quickly as I can. But I, uh, I am very grateful. They do turn up with them, and uh, there are a lot. Something that you wouldn't normally associate with civil service at all is the, the, what is now the Forestry Commission. Um, again, these people are civil servants, but they are men with axes, men who work out in the woods, felling trees and doing whatever else it is people in forestry do. And among the, uh, the records of, of that department is uh, a, a petition from a number of men, and these are manual workers, they are not particularly well paid, and a petition asking politely, could they have some more money, please? Because, of course, as the war went on, food shortages began to bite, and the price of everything was going up. And although um, a number of departments awarded lots of staff war bonuses, so their wages did go up, but very often not um, at a sufficient pace to keep up with the cost uh, of living as it went up. Uh, and um, I, I particularly like this one because it has got the actual signatures of all these people. But you see the same theme cropping up again and again in a number of departments where there is concern, either coming from the bottom up or the, the department itself can see that there are problems, that there are people who are discontented because they're not earning um, enough money to keep up with the rising cost of living and while as they perceive some people are doing better than they are and um, I wouldn't say it's unique to Britain but I think we all whoever we are wherever we're from we all have a sense of fair play we don't like to see people being badly treated so this is something else um, that I, I found in this particular department I also saw in some correspondence in the office of woods and forests um, some correspondence about staff who were being paid war bonuses. And this was quite early in the war, when, of course, a lot of men had gone off to fight, and like everybody else, they're left with depleted numbers of staff. And um, there's a letter from, from on high saying, why are we paying this young man a war bonus? He's only 17 or something, and he's only been working for us for a very short time. And the, you know, the realistic answer that went back was, because if we didn't, he'd go and work for somebody else. When you are uh, one of, you know, a, a fit young man who is not old enough for war service, you are kind of at a premium because there are an awful lot of employers who need you um, for all sorts of industrial processes. Uh, so um, in, people who are fit to work uh, were very much in demand, even women. This uh, is a rather nice depart um, department of, well, sorry, Ministry of Transport document that I found. And it's a, it's a list of uh, Ramsgate Harbour staff uh, who had uh, been released for war service. And uh, it lists, uh, again, not only their names, but their civil rank and then uh, their, which bit of the services they were in, but right down to the battalion 
within the regiment and their service number. So this is very handy. They also provided this, I think this may have been part of it, a list of, towards the end of the war, uh, lists of, these are the key staff that we would like to have back first, please, now that the war is drawing to a close. And that was another theme that I noticed, that the departments, they had to cope with the war emergency, they had to employ extra people, whether it was women or um, people who had recently retired. A lot of recently retired staff were brought back if they were willing and, and fit to work. Um, and uh, all sorts of temporary staff would be taken on. And I'm sure in a lot of cases in the knowledge that we're only going to have this young man for a short time, but he hasn't been called up yet, or he's only 16, so we've got a couple of years out of it. So there were a number of um, things that were done. Also, where it was feasible, overtime was paid. So that was another way that they coped with it. But they were also looking to the future. And really, from quite early on in the war, um, you get a lot of references to what we're going to do when the war's over. And this is another area where education was particularly interesting because a lot of school teachers had joined up and this left a great shortage, same as everywhere else. But even though the country, as it perceived, was fighting for its life, there was also a very strong consciousness that we needed to educate the coming generation well. So um, you couldn't just park education for a while and hope for the best. There was a very, very strong uh, climate of opinion, I mean, obviously within the um, uh, Ministry of Education, that uh, we should do our best to make sure that the children, um, without their regular teachers, were still getting the best possible education. And it was very interesting to see just how many were looking at ahead, and uh, in, in many cases, you know, so... What are we going to do with these women after the war? Um, but in a lot of departments, if you look at something like the, the imperial calendar or, or anything to do with uh, any establishment lists, you will see that while the number of women went dramatically right down, that there were still some, particularly in the, the clerical work. And they discovered that um, these women seem to be perfectly competent. They're all right. And big bonus, they're cheap. Um, I was looking at something, it was specifically to do with the dockyards, and this was many, many years ago, and I'm sure I've still got the notes somewhere. But um, I saw lots of um, letters and correspondence from trade unions, from male trade unions, saying, yes, we're absolutely in favour of equal pay. And then when you read in more detail, and you read between the, the lines, this was not them being terrifically um, supportive um, of, of their female counterparts. It was because they knew, and sometimes said quite explicitly, that if an employer has to pay the same wages, whether he employs a male or a female, he will choose the male. Because, rightly or wrongly, he believes that he will get more work, better work out of the male. The advantage of the females, in many cases, is that they're cheap. So uh, this was not solidarity at all. This was quite a crafty move to make sure that, it, um, that their own um, employment status was uh, preserved. I can't say I blame them. It was quite clever, I thought, yeah. for men. Yeah. This was something else I found also from transport. Um, one of the most disappointing answers that we have to give to inquirers who are asking about a relative or an ancestor who won some sort of gallantry award is the why question. If they won the Victoria Cross, that's easy enough. 
lots and lots about all the VC winners. But for lots of others, usually we can only say that they got the award, you can find out when it was, but you can only guess as to what they did to earn it. In a very, very few cases, such as this, um, it is explicitly spelt out exactly what these people did to earn their, their particular awards. And uh, this is, uh, I, I like this because it was the people who come into the unsung hero category, really. Um, people who just kept the trains running, specifically carrying out their duties in a most efficient manner under circumstances of great stress and difficulty day and night. Um, so that's, that's quite a nice thing. It was to do with, with the arrangement of troop trains and so on. And the, the transport worked. We got the army mobilised. We got people back. The post got through. All this stuff doesn't just happen. Somebody has to organise it. And um, I always have a, a lot of empathy for people, even within the army, things like the Army Service Corps, that got stuff done, that moved things around, and transport of the Board of Trade. It's not glamorous, it's not high level, but if they didn't do their jobs and do them really well under obviously very trying circumstances, the other stuff wouldn't happen. Now, that was a, just a sample of some of the things that I have found. There is so much more. If you have another three or four hours, I'm happy to continue, but that's probably not a sensible suggestion. I'm continuing to research this, and as I find new things, I find things to do with them. There will, I hope, be blog posts. But one of the things I wanted to show you was, well, how I found some of this. And mainly, I, lo I looked in the guidance, but... A lot of what I found was by identifying suitable documents or things that looked quite promising in Discovery, our online catalogue. And the homepage of Discovery has got a lovely inviting search box and you know, there's a lot of people, you can't see a search box without going and typing something in it and sometimes that just works. When you're trying to do a specific search, I usually find that using an advanced search, whether it's our site or anybody else's, is often uh, better that you can focus your search. In this particular case, if you use the advanced search within Discovery, you have to put something in one of the top boxes, either just find these words or an exact phrase, um, all of these words or any of these words. The example that I've shown here is just one of them. I've looked for the, either the word staff or establishment. And I've restricted my search, in this case, to the two record series, STAT, which is Stationary Office, and PRO, which is Public Record Office, and given it a year range. That's just one of the searches that I did. If you were to do that search, you would get a manageable number of results. Some of them will be completely irrelevant because the word staff or establishment will be used in a context that's not relevant. But it is a good way of identifying some documents which might, in this case, have a list of people in. That's how I found the um, establishment, and the, well, the staff established and unestablished books for the stationary office. Another kind of search I did was, you, was looking for the words war or wartime and restricting that to you know, one or more departments. Uh, I wouldn't recommend trying that with the war office. That's just silly. But <laughs> Although there is a, a, a facility on Discovery now, which is rather underused, 
where uh, when you go into the small print to filter your searches, you can actually exclude the, 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 the series title. Because the trouble is, if you were going to put in the word war in War Office, you would get every single item in all the War Office series. Not helpful. If you exclude the whole series, you'd still get far too much. But it does work with, with some others. Um, I had great difficulty with um, Treasury, because, trust me, everything is in Treasury. Because nobody can do anything unless Treasury let them have the money. So the subject matter that appears in Treasury records is, is um, unbelievable. But the, and I, was, I, I found lots of really terrific things in Treasury by searching with the names of other departments to see what the Treasury had to say. And they've often got interesting files on sometimes individual cases of somebody who worked in the Home Office or the General Register Office. Of course, what really doesn't work is trying to find about people in the Treasury, because if you put Treasury in, you get everything. If you exclude the series title, um, it's still quite tricky, but it is just about manageable. So that's just a particular kind of search, but it's the way I manage to find things. Key search terms, restrict it by date, and restrict it to particular one or two record series, and then try different combinations. You still won't find everything. I sometimes found things when I just did a search for everything within a particular department in a date range, and you will get descriptions which contain keywords that you wouldn't have thought of, or that something about the context suggests it might be interesting. So just just play with the catalogue. You're not going to break it. Um, uh, and you never know what you're going to find. And if you do find something interesting, make a note of it, because you might not find it again. <laughs> and finally, once you've found something really interesting, you can tag it. If you've looked at our First World War portal site, which is on the, the home page, one of the things that it invites you to do and to look at is our um, Operation War Diary. We've digitised a lot of the war diaries, but the really exciting thing is we're inviting people to go in and look at individual pages and tag bits of information on there. It's not indexing as such because these are um, sort of non-standard documents. And, and it's a fascinating project, and some people get quite hooked on it. Please feel free to join in. We'd like you to do that. But the war diaries are not the only thing that you can tag. If in the course of your researches you find a record, whether it's an online one that's on your screen or whether it's something where you've actually ordered up the big grubby papery thing and you found something really interesting in it, um, and you just want to alert the rest of the world, or at least the small subsection of the rest of the world who looks on discovery, that there is something really interesting in there. You can do that through tagging. And within discovery, there is a whole section that explains what tags are and how you can use them, how you can search the tags that are already there, and how you can add to them. I haven't done anything like as much this as I, as I should. Um, um, it's always a you know, don't do what I do, do what I say. I have done one thing, though. I mentioned the correspondence with the schools about the exemptions and a few other things. Uh, that's only three small files. But what I did do was I went to all of these three files and I added as tags the names of the schools with which there is any correspondence. That's the sort of thing that you can do. Or if you find in one of these... Uh, a document, oh, this has got a list of names in it. That's quite a useful piece of information. So that's the sort of thing that you can do on, um, if you want to tag things. If you find something really interesting at last, there is a way that you can leave a permanent note that there is something interesting in there 
It's not about transcribing a whole document. It's just about flagging up there's something really interesting in there somebody else might like. So that is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Other than that, thank you very much for listening. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>